This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So the topic tonight is opinions, views. What do we take to be true? And I want to begin with a quote from a Thai forest master named Ajahn Shah, who said, the greatest hindrance is views and opinions. It's an interesting statement that views and opinions can be the greatest hindrance, when in fact we all have plenty of views and opinions, don't we? In the middle-length discourses, the Buddha said, if a person has a belief, he preserves truth when he says, my belief is thus. He does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. Beliefs arise, we have them, we construct them, and the Buddhist teachings recognize this fact. But do we solidify the view into the thought, this is correct, I am right, and therefore every other view is wrong? Now the Buddha lived during a time in history when spiritual debate flourished, but sometimes degenerated into arguments and speculation. And there were times when the ascetics and wanderers of different sects would meet in the parks outside the cities and sometimes engage in lively, fruitful debate and sometimes just argue. And at one point they were arguing, it's recorded in the, in the Buddhist discourses, a general statement which is, the Dhamma is like this. No, the Dhamma is like that. No, the Dhamma is like this. No, the Dhamma is like that. Okay, we've all been in some argument like that, right? And the Buddha used the image and the simile of, of a group of blind men who are shown an elephant and asked to describe the elephant. And one of the blind men approaches the elephant and feels the tail and says, the elephant is just like a broom. And another one touches the, 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 um, the legs, the feet, and says, no, an elephant is just like a stump. And another of the, of the blind men touches the uh, trunk and says, no, an elephant is just like a hose. And after telling this, describing this story, this image, the Buddha says that, he says, some recluses and Brahmins, so-called, are deeply attached to their own views. People who see only one side of things engage in quarrels and disputes. We all have opinions that are pretty much based on our unique and individual perspective. Even the most spiritually awake people that I have met have views that are conditioned by their education, their culture, their generation, their politics, their gender. We've all formed ideas of how things are, 
how the world works, how things should be done. And this usually seems good and right and fair and efficient to us. And sometimes we don't even realize that we have views and opinions, that we have become attached to ways of doing things until we're thrown outside of our relatively comfortable routines and habits. And sometimes this happens when we go to dinner at a friend's house and we try to help them load their dishwasher. And we realize they put their dishes in totally differently. And we may not have even thought that we had come into such a habit of how we put our things in the dishwasher. But often when we travel and we go another place and enter into a different cultural setting, we realize there are many ways of doing things because different people in different places have very different ways of cooking and bathing and living and organizing themselves. Even the sounds on the streets and the way the hours that shops are open vary culture to culture. There are many ways of doing things. And sometimes we take a stance and have a view. This is how it should be done. This is the right way to do it. And when we take a stance, we often construct a sense of self, what in Buddhism is called personality view, a view of who we are, a familiar place for ourselves. And we create that sense of familiar self-construction by relating to our life habits, our culture, our world in certain familiar patterns that become our views. If we hold a view tightly, it will affect our perception and it might prevent us from having a clear and direct experience of what's actually happening in the present moment. Whenever we want to grow, to learn, to experience something fresh, something mindful, something intimate, we have to be willing to let go of our preconceived notions, empty the mind of preconceived concepts. Just as when we have a a cup filled with dirty water, we have to be willing to empty it before we can fill it with something new. We have to be willing to empty our minds and let go of fixed positions in order to let the new into our life. Whatever views we have are usually conditioned by our own experience, but this isn't necessarily the same experience of someone else. In fact, it's guaranteed to be different (laughs) in some ways than somebody else's experience. But often from our viewpoint, we develop opinions and interpretations, judgments. Sometimes they're harsh, and sometimes they're they're relatively helpful. We might want to even offer advice. 
I went to one training session on teaching Dhamma in the first few years when I was of, of teaching. And one of the uh, lamas who was um, teaching at this, this event said, it is very easy to be wrong about what others need. <laughs> and I thought this was very simple, but very good advice. Reflect for a moment on some views that you have, that you hold. Perhaps views about how one should meditate. How a community of meditators should be organized. Perhaps you might have views about what other members of your family should do with their lives. What kind of work they should do what kind of relationship they should be in or should get out of. You might have views about health practices or what's the best diet or the best um, way of, 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 of eating. You might have views about work or friends, spirituality, community. You might have views about me. How should somebody give a Dhamma talk? How should somebody function as a teacher? It it's, can be interesting to examine your opinions, your views, and to ask a few simple questions. The first is, are they true? Are they actually true? Are they true in all conditions? Are they true from, for different people? And how could you assess, how can you know if something is actually true? What have you based your opinion on? And sometimes we discover that we've based our opinions on things that are not actually relevant now. Some of our opinions are based on things that have long passed. Old memories, old patterns, old conditioning. And when we look, we realize right now there's contradictory evidence that we just weren't cluing into. We weren't opening up to, we weren't seeing, because it didn't confirm our view. Notice that contradictory evidence. Identify the view as a process of conditioning, a belief that's repeated through our actions and our associations. Notice the things that we do in the way that we speak, the way that we act, the choices and decisions that we make, the people that we interact with. What do we do to hold our view in place? What are we doing to solidify and form that opinion or that view. Sometimes we can hold very tightly to nothing more than an idea in our minds and create an awful lot of conflict with the situation just because we're holding tightly to a particular idea. 
Ben Franklin, at the age of 82, said, The older I grow, the more apt I am to doubt my own judgment, even on matters that I was once certain of, because when I received fuller information or new arguments, I found that I was often wrong in the opinions that I originally formed. What opinions do we form? And are we willing to recognize that we can be wrong and let them change? Meditators often have views about their own meditation practice. Unfortunately, views about our meditation practice usually slow our the development of our meditation practice down because we're judging ourselves. And sometimes they can entirely cripple us, cripple our development. How do we have views? What kind of views do we have about meditation? Well, sometimes we develop views about what is the best kind of meditation. And I've at different times practiced in different communities that believed they were really doing the best. Some articulated their approach as being the purest, you know, maybe the closest to what the Buddha actually taught. Others elevated their practice because it was the most freeing and um, ultimate in terms of release and spaciousness and relaxation. Sometimes people elevated non-effort, the re complete release <coughs> of that individual striving. And others would elevate diligence and ardency and the power of effort. And different views would guide different schools and different approaches. For myself, I have liked and valued and benefited by practicing in very different um, schools of meditation with teachers that approach meditation from really radically different perspectives. And simply by keeping my focus on the purpose, the aim that I have of freeing the mind, I have enjoyed lots of different techniques, even though some of those schools argue with each other or contradict each other. I don't necessarily find a contradiction in them, because to, to make a contradiction, we have to adopt the view of the hierarchy. Otherwise, there's really no conflict. There are little things that sometimes happen in people's practice that would establish views. For example, when we're sitting and meditating, have you ex ever experienced an emotion? Well, I hope you're all nodding, because of course, you're not going to go through an hour without feeling an emotion. Okay, maybe it'll be dullness. Maybe it'll be excitement. Maybe it'll be sadness. Maybe it'll be restlessness. Maybe it'll be agitation. There'll be some kind of mental state, some kind of an emotion. But sometimes when we're doing our retreat practice or we're sitting in our meditation at home, we experience very intense emotions, maybe profound grief or a kind or, or an, some intensification of um, fear or anger. And 
Sometimes this is, um, it can be very intense. Let's just say it can be very intense. And I've had meditators come up saying they've just got to have an interview. Um, because they're experiencing these, um, these, these, these very strong emotions. And one meditator will say, oh, I'm having these really intense emotions. My practice is so vital, so alive, so intense. And there'd be this, real, this view about having emotions in practice that say, this is going deep. You know, having the emotions is going deep in practice. And so the view, the emotions are the emotions, but the view says this is good practice, it's deep. Now, somebody else comes to me and describes almost the same emotions, almost the same intensity, but says my practice is so bad. My mind is all over the place. I can't settle. I'm just swept away in these emotions because they have the view that these emotions are bad and that the meditation should be more equanimous. What's happening is just emotion. Whether the view is that it's good and deep and profound, or the view that it's bad and agitating and and non-equanimous, those are just views and opinions. That's clinging to a particular position. And neither position allows the meditator to simply observe mindfully the arising, changing, and passing of emotional states. So how do we interpret what happens in our meditation practice as simple and common as the arising of an emotion? What about concentration? There are lots of different views about concentration in practice. Some people have a very strong view that concentration is absolutely the most important thing. And one should just concentrate, 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 concentrate the mind. Other people have a view that's the reverse, that says, oh, concentration is of no importance at all. One should simply see the changing nature of things and contemplate change. One doesn't need to concentrate on any particular object. One doesn't have to concentrate on no object. Very different views. Who's to say which is right? Mu Song, one of the um, directors at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barry, said, What would it be like if we could train ourselves to softly note, this is the deluded mind at work, each time an opinion is formed in the mind? And I thought, now that's a really good practice to undertake, to just note, this is the deluded mind at work, every time we recognize an opinion has formed. So often when people come to an interview to speak about their practice, to have a consultation about what's occurring in their meditation, the first thing they do is they tell me what they think about their meditation practice, whether it's going really great or whether it's going really terribly. What are those? Views, opinions. 
Most of the time, people have already constructed an opinion before they have articulated what is actually occurring. And it happens so automatically for us that we don't always recognize the interpretation as an interpretation, and we present it as an assumed fact. Many of the traditional approaches to meditation include a component where one reports to the teacher in a style that is very neutral. I practiced some years ago with a style of meditation where we use the mental noting very strictly to note the various sensations that we experience in the body, whatever arises in the mind, in the senses, and the, the, sense, the, 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 the rising of the belly, the falling of the, of the belly on each breath. And so we would go into the interview and we would report, um, I noted the rising as rising, and on the rising I noted thinking four times and tingling twice. There was a moment of judging, which I noted um, as judging, and then I noted pressure and hardness, and then I noted the falling, and on the falling I noted the, you know, you get the idea, right? Just, just reporting what was noted in the mind and in the body. Just reporting it. This structure for reporting is often very difficult for practitioners, because not because it requires a lot of attention to detail. That's part of the meditation practice, and that happens um, fairly easily. But it can be a difficult approach to meditation and reporting because it encourages, it, it encourages a depersonalized approach to the perception. And so it can be frustrating if somebody is seeking some kind of personal or psychological affirmation in that dialogue with the teacher. If one has the tendency to dwell on personal stories, to start an interview by describing something that happened 23 years ago and then change this way and then that way and then this way and then that way and then this way and then that way. Not only does it take a very long time to get to the present moment experience, but usually a long history like that is not serving to explain something that needs to be explained to understand the present, but it's serving simply to confirm the sense of who I am speaking to the other person. So it's confirming and establishing a place for ourselves in the world and in the relationship. Now we do this normally in our culture, but when we enter into a traditional retreat setting with traditional teachers, like Asian teachers or people teaching in a traditional style, anything that reestablishes and reaffirms that sense of self is going to be a distraction in the practice. Now many teachers will allow students to just go through their process figuring in time they'll get comfortable and it'll settle down and they'll make their way to the present moment. <laughs> but in your own process, notice the tendency to, 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 to dialogue in a way that confirms the self, 
that view that we have of who we are and how we are. And the possibility that you might have to just be as you are describing what your experience is. It's very, in meditation, it's very simple and straightforward, but I think it can also be carried into our daily lives and perhaps simplify some dynamics. In one discourse, the Buddha mentioned that householders, lay people, tend to dispute due to lust for sensual pleasures, and ascetics tend to dispute because they cleave to views and opinions. And the awakened ones have overcome both attachment to sensual pleasures and views. Now, it's an interesting um, uh, statement. However, I seem to think that we might cling to both views and opinions and sensor sensory pleasures. <laughs> Most of us recognize that our views of life, our views of ourselves, our views of most experiences are somewhat fragmentary and those experiences are continuously changing. And so as new information comes to light, we are probably willing to alter our view a little bit. So our attachments to views and opinions are not likely to be everlasting, kind of unchanging, God-given, absolute opinions about how things always are and always will be. I think most of us are too sophisticated and just a little too smart for that. But in the formation of any opinion, we have identified with a perspective and created a platform for the self to stand upon. In the development that occurs between the raw sensory experience and the construction of the opinion, we have taken a stand with a very limited view of self, of who we are. When we adopt this view, we incarnate as the self. And it is through that attachment to that perspective that we have constructed that we trap ourselves in a particular view of who we are and how, how we think we are in the world. Even spiritual views become a trap because we become the one who is the meditator the one who is contemplating impermanence and change, the one who has had an insight into emptiness, the one who wants to be free. Mindfulness meditation asks us to observe this development from the experience to the view at a very subtle level to see what happens in a moment of contact. Are we mindful of experience in the present moment? Or are we doing a lot with that experience and then commenting upon it and having ideas about it? You might sometimes notice when you're meditating if you're just observing the experience or if you're narrating it. Are you feeling the in-breath? Or are you saying, I'm now having an in-breath. And I'm now having an out-breath. And my in-breath feels this way, and my out-breath feels that way. Sometimes when you, when you notice that commentary, 
see if it's possible to let go of the story of the present moment, the constructed commentary on it, and just drop in to a less conceptual way of knowing it, just feeling it, just being intimate with it. The Buddha described four kinds of clinging. These four kinds of clinging, clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views and opinions, clinging to rites, rituals, conventions, methods, ways of doing things, and clinging to the concept of self as the fourth, keep us trapped. And they're like, it's likened to a, a parrot trap. Are you familiar with those parrot traps in India where they hang um, the parrots? There's a lot of parrots in India, and they come and they eat the crops. And so the farmers don't like the parrots. But also parrots can be caught, and so they can be caught and they can either be killed by some farmers or they can be sold as pets and parrots and, you know, they're valuable as well. So they like to sometimes catch them, and what they do is they put a ring in the, in, the, in the field, and the ring is balanced in such a way that when the parrot lands on the ring, like a perch, you know, it's like a perch in the middle of a field, the parrot lands on the ring, and the weight of the parrot holding on, grasping a hold of the ring, causes the ring to spin. And as the <coughs> ring spins, the instinct of the parrot is to grip tighter. And so the ring is spinning and the parrot is holding on, holding on as it's spinning and spinning and spinning until the farmers come and capture it. It's caught because of its own action. Anytime it would, be, would have been able to let go, it would have freed itself and been safe from those dangers. Now these four kinds of clinging to sensory pleasures is the first, to views and opinions is the second, to the clinging to what's called rites, rituals, but it doesn't necessarily have to be formalized rites and rituals. It's really about our conventions, our ways of doing things, our methods and techniques. And the fourth is to the concept of self. These have a lot to do, rites and rituals, I mean, sorry, uh, views and opinions are one specific aspect, but the views and opinions are very much related to the views that we have about rites and rituals and the views that we have about our self, personality view. Views are the primary way that we cling. When we understand this attachment, through the views, through the views of self, through the views of what I want, how, what I think things should be like, how I interpret body and mind, then we might be able to see the construction of self as a construction itself. It's not a solid eternal, everlasting I. There is nothing that can be said to be mine or me. It's just the nature of mind and body affected by the clinging of views and opinions. And in that combination of mind and body and certain perspectives of attachment, we literally construct 
who we are moment by moment. But when we can see this process as just a natural process and the mind and body as just nature, as it actually is, seeing with wisdom, this is right view and it is liberating. It is not a particular belief. There is no Buddhist belief that is going to liberate us. There is no Buddhist belief that is going to uproot attachment or ignorance. The uprooting of attachment and ignorance and the ending of the causes of suffering occur when we have clarified our perception and seen things as they really are. So I don't want you to have the impression that I think spiritual life should be devoid of opinions or that we should just be kind of wishy-washy, you know, unclear, unwilling to take a stance on anything kind of beings floating around in our spiritual bubble. <coughs> Having clear perception is an important part of being able to take a wise approach to things, a wise view, a right view. How do we express our views? How do we express the perspectives and opinions that we do have? First of all, I think it's vital to see it as just a view. At the time of the Buddha, there, was said there were several philosophical views that were commonly debated. And they had to do with the world being eternal or not eternal, infinite or not infinite. Did the mind exist after death or not? Was the soul the same as the body or not? What happened to the Buddha's mind, the, Buddha's, the Buddha after death? What happened to the awakened mind? And these things were kind of hotly debated. And people would take one stance and then another stance and argue back and forth. And in, in one situation, there was um, a... A, the attendant of the Buddha, Venerable Ananda, um, was listening to a debate and a, an argument between various ascetics that were, were, were basically talking about these various philosophical views. And then they turned to him and asked him to say his view. What was his view on this? What stand did he take? What was the Buddhist position on it? And instead of taking a stance on any of these positions of the, uh, and what, what were called speculative views, he shifted the discussion from the speculation to the process that he was witnessing, the process of clinging to views, of constructing views. And he said, only this is true, anything else is worthless, is a viewpoint. The extent to which there are viewpoints, view stances, the taking up of views, obsessions with views, the cause of views, and the uprooting of views. That's what I know. That's what I see. Knowing that, I say, I know. Seeing that, I say, I see. Why should I say, I don't know? I don't see. I do know. I do see. He's stating what he perceives, and that perception includes this tendency for the discussion to revolve around 
the attachment to various views and view stances, the positions that different ascetics were taking on those speculative views. So he shifted it off the, 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 the content of that speculation and said, this is what I see. In the Buddhist tradition, wrong view or not seeing how mind and matter function, how attachment leads to suffering, not seeing the views as the views, is considered to be the basic supporting factor for ignorance. It nourishes ignorance. Wrong view is said that it, it's said that wrong view must be abandoned in order to undertake the noble eightfold path. Right view is considered the first factor on that eightfold path. But right view, interestingly, is not a particular belief that we should adopt. Right view is actually beyond all views. It's not a correct or accurate view, but right view implies the ending of all misperceptions and all attachments. So I'm not encouraging you tonight to just refine the accuracy of your opinions or to hold a better view, a more spiritual view, or a very good Buddhist view. Any view affected by clinging inherently is considered a wrong view. The Buddha repeatedly encouraged people to not argue and dispute over philosophical positions, but to inquire into the core questions that have the potential to free the mind from attachment to question what is suffering and what is the ending of suffering. You're probably familiar with the story of the handful of leaves where the Buddha was walking through the forest and he was asked about his knowledge, the extent and range of his knowledge. And he said that his knowledge was like the, tree, the leaves in all the trees of the forest. But he reached down and picked up a handful of leaves and he said, what I teach is like this handful of leaves. I teach suffering and the ending of suffering. That is what is essential. <coughs> I'd like to pose a few questions for your contemplation and reflection and then we'll take a few minutes to discuss them together. The first is to just think back over the last week or two and consider how many times, how frequently did you take a strong stance based on a particular opinion in a conversation? Consider thoughts or situations at work where you might have had a very strong opinion about how a project should develop, or conversations at home, or conversations with people that you just met socially. How did you express your view? And what was that view based upon? 
Was there some personal experience in your own life that reinforced that view, that made you think, no, this is really true? Was there some scientific study that supported it? Was there some famous person? Was there a social group that you wanted to be identified with? Some association of some kind? How strongly do you hold your views and opinions? And how often do you think that you are right? And then contemplate your own meditation practice. And think for a minute if you have an opinion about your meditation practice. Do you judge your practice as being superior or inferior to others? Do you judge the rate of your progress? And what do you judge that against? It's a really weird thing to have an opinion about, isn't it? What do we, what do we, if we do have an opinion about the development of our progress, what are we even comparing that to? The Buddha? (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.